Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. You can find my weekly columns at the Conservative Institute or get my Friday newsletter in your email inbox each week by signing up at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. If you were signed up this past week, you could have read all the impeachment and Ukraine updates that I sent out. I had a column that covered how the Democrats are all in on impeachment and how they pushed all their electoral chips into the impeachment ring. And then my second column this week was why Americans believing that Joe Biden is corrupt is a sign of, it, it's one, it's not surprising, and two, it's another sign of how our trust in media institutions has become even more weak the more this story comes out. And finally, with the newsletter itself, you could have seen my analysis of the latest impeachment updates and comparing that to the Mueller report and what lessons we can take from that. This podcast is powered by Podcast One, who advertises on the front end as well as during the breaks. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Contact information for that, as well as sign-up links for everything I've mentioned so far, can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Overcast, and others. Five-star reviews help others like you find us, so please leave those reviews and help us move up in the rankings. Covering three things this week, three of the broad topics, and then two quick things up front. The first on the NBA, and the second for a note on the Supreme Court about a case that's going through. It's going to be argued on Tuesday this week, and just why you'll be seeing that in your news feeds. And then when the opinion eventually comes down, probably next spring, why it'll be dominating your news feeds and all your social media. The big three topics are an impeachment update, talking through the polls and the latest evidence. After that, I'm going to cover Bernie Sanders' heart attack and compare him to other candidates, what that can kind of tell us about what we're seeing in the Democratic primaries. And then I'm going to wrap up with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and some leaked audio clips from The Verge, who got some leaked footage out of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg And it's pretty telling stuff. I'm going to play two clips from that, from their trove that they pulled out, but I'm going to link to the rest of it. And if you're curious, I do recommend going in and listening to that because it's quite revealing. So, this week, starting out with the NBA and the Supreme Court case, like I said, um, the first thing, the note I wanted to make on the NBA is that it's, if you haven't seen it, the story is that Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morley made a comment of support for the Hong Kong protesters in China. In Hong Kong, you may have seen some of the reports of all the uprising and all the people in the street protesting from all the egregious abuses that China has been sending them through. They've been literally kidnapping people. People just disappear in the middle of the night. And part of the protests have been about changes in laws that the people in Hong Kong have just been irate about, and understandably so. And so Darren Morley, who's general manager of the Houston Rockets, and the Rockets are one of the most popular franchises in China. They used to have Yao Ming on their team, who was the most popular player that China's ever produced. Anyway, Morley commented, and he just tweeted out general support for the Hong Kong protesters. And this caused a massive uproar. The next thing you know, China is boycotting the Rockets and pulling all sponsorships and pulling them off the air, and all of a sudden the NBA is embroiled in a big deal with China 
the NBA has been pushing over for years over there, trying to get in inroads and other things, making a lot of money with the gigantic fan base that they have over there. And instead of supporting morally, the NBA took the most cowardly act that I that was possible. They not only didn't side with Morley, they leaned on him to apologize. His statement, his latest statement, it's not really an apology, but he talks about there being two sides to the coin, which there isn't in this case. China's just a corrupt regime. But beyond that, they leaned on other players in the league, people uh, like James Harden, star of the Houston Rockets. All of a sudden, he's issuing apologies for Daryl Morley, and and so you're just sitting here and you're looking at this and you're saying, why would you do this? I mean, on the NBA's thing, the reason that they're doing this is that they want all this money. But they like to espouse how progressive they are in every way. And here they are going out of their way to help out a murderous regime. This is the same NBA who, when North Carolina started passing the bathroom bills, when the, the uh, transgender bathroom bills, they threatened to remove all-star games and the players and all these executives were irate about that. You've heard other coaches and other players and executives in the NBA blast different states for passing abortion laws. And yet, when push comes to shove over China, they're sitting here siding with a police state, a literal communist police state that's jailed and murdered millions of people. So it's a bad day for the NBA. And I watch the NBA, I love basketball and watching all of it, but it's just, it's bad to see for the sports league. It's one thing for it to pretend to be woke or progressive. It's quite another for it to just toss all of that aside and start supporting China. This is, in a way, it's exactly like the NFL anthem protest. It's the NBA leaning on players and trying to get what they want. The NFL did this too with Colin Kaepernick and a lot of others trying to prevent those anthem protests from happening. And they did so, and they got blasted for doing that. And the NBA is doing the exact same thing here, and they deserve to be blasted even more. When the NFL did this, they tried to hide behind patriotism and not bowing when the anthem was involved. Well, there's really none of that here. The NBA doesn't have any real defense other than they just have a lot of money and resources tied up. So it's disappointing to see the NBA do that, and I hope they change course and support morally and, in the end, support all of the protesters in Hong Kong. So that broke late while I was getting ready to record this, and I wanted to cover that. And the second thing I want to cover real quick before jumping into the main topics this week The Supreme Court is hearing a case over discrimination and whether employers can fire people for two bases. The first is whether they can fire people um, who declare that they are gay. And the second thing is firing people on the basis of whether or not they claim to be transgendered. And the key here is... It has the cases involved here have less to do with gay or transgender rights and more about what to how to interpret um, the Civil Rights Act and specifically sex discrimination. So you're going to see a lot of people talking about this case in the coming days, weeks, and months because the the actual arguments are coming up and then they're going to eventually have to decide the case. And what you really need to know about what's happening in this case is that it it comes down to a statutory interpretation of one word. In the Civil Rights Act, 
it is banned, you're banned as an employer from firing a person on the basis of their sex. So this was meant to target discrimination against women, first and foremost. So if banning sex discrimination means an employer can't say, oh, we can fire you for any reason, but our specific reason in this case is that we're firing you for because you're a woman or a man. It works both ways. An employer can't do that. That is sex-based discrimination. Well, what the argument is now is that the the plaintiffs in this case, in these cases, there's two of them that have been combined, what they're saying is that sex-based discrimination also includes people who are gay, lesbian, or transgendered. And the interesting thing here is that all the parties involved agree that on a originalist reading of this statute, that's not how you can read it. If you, uh, well, you, Originalism is where you read the statute with the intent that the people who wrote that statute at the time had. So the Civil Rights Act was passed in the 1960s, and everyone widely agrees that there is no way that Congress, when they passed that statute, had transgenderism or gays and lesbians in their mind when they wrote this legislation just didn't happen. But if you read it on a textual basis and you ignore the past, there may be a chance that you can read this these new understandings of the words in it just by looking at the text of the statute. So that's the tension at play here. There's a case where Scalia, in interpreting the uh, sex discrimination uh, statute lines in the Civil Rights Act said that all you had to do in interpreting this was look at the statute. You didn't need to use originalism with this statute. You just had to look at the actual text involved. So that is the tension here. Do you read this statute and its interpretation as a form of originalism, or you read it as the people interpreted at the time that the statute was passed, or do you use textualism and just read the text? So it'll have less to do about whether or not you believe in rights for any single group in here and more about how you'd interpret a statute. So that's the big takeaway there. And I, I really don't have any idea how the court will go on this. We haven't seen uh, any big case that I can think of where you have Gorsuch and Kavanaugh talking through these differences with this uh, explicit statuting play. So it'll be real interesting when we see go through arguments and see kind of where everybody is is hinting about using their arguments in this case. That's where oral arguments will be really helpful because it'll tell us kind of where the court is leaning. So just when you start seeing it, just know there's more to this than just simple rights involved here. There's a question of how to interpret the Civil Rights Act, and that's the heart of this case before the Supreme Court. So when the media starts reporting, oh, the Supreme Court sided with this or that, that's not really what happened. No matter what happens in this case, it's about how you interpret the statute and that's about it. That's what they're all going to be arguing about in this case. All right, so that'll do it for those two quick things. That allows us to move on to the main th- topics this week. And the first thing up is the impeachment update that I wanted to cover real quick. If you look, and I'm sort of calling this an impeachment update because I don't have any other way thing to really call what we're dealing with now in the Trump administration, If you're looking at impeachment, you have to factor in the fact that this is highly political. So you have to look at it not just from what actions Trump did or didn't take and whether or not there was some illegality involved. You have to look at the political pressures involved and seeing where people stand. And the latest polls 
looking at 538's aggregation of the polls, shows that there was a there was a sharp spike when the Ukraine scandal broke, and they have that as September 19th, where you had about a general support of more than 50% of people didn't support any kind of impeachment, where 40% did. And since that has come out, it all spiked to about 47% for and against. And those numbers have really flatlined since then. So it's really just 47-47. And that's not enough for anyone to impeach. And I know people are looking at some of the other splits in these poll numbers where they say, oh, you know, 80% of Democrats support impeachment, and that's great. But that doesn't take into account all these other groups. Only about 13% of Republicans do, and around 40% of independents think impeachment is the right way to approach Donald Trump's conduct in this case, uh, which is why I really think this is being polled wrong. Instead of asking, you know, should Trump be impeached or not, or should Democrats pursue an impeachment inquiry or not, the real question that they need to start asking is, should Democrats attack Donald Trump's conduct through impeachment and impeachment inquiries, or should they focus on the 2020 elections and trying to get him out of office instead? That's the real thing that pollsters need to focus on, because it'll tell us whether or not people view this conduct by Trump in the latest Ukraine scandal as so bad that an election doesn't cover it, or whether or not they think, oh, well, it's bad conduct, it's probably impeachable, but they should just go ahead and focus on the elections instead. That'll tell you a lot more about what's happening here behind the scenes, because voters may say that they want to follow. The other thing that's happening with these poll numbers is that they're getting mixed in with people who support an impeachment inquiry and people who want an actual removal from office. Those are two different questions. You can support you know, investigating Donald Trump all day long, but saying that you want him actually removed from office as a result of that of that investigation is an entirely different question. And actual impeachment is very specific, and it's a very extreme thing to want. It's not a normal thing that happens in our system. And so if you want that, you're asking for the most extreme thing to happen before an election. And I find that kind of hard to believe that people would want. So I'd like to see pollsters focus in on that some more. Because again, if people are split 47-47, that's not enough. You may be able to convince enough House Democrats to vote for impeachment on that front, but you're not going. To, that's not enough support for anyone in the Senate. Remember, for the Senate, if you're going to remove somebody, you have to have two-thirds support. And Democrats just don't have that. They don't have two-thirds support Senate in the Senate. And I'm not even sure, with a 47-47, which is below 50% support for anything, I'm not sure they even have that type of support in the House with Nancy Pelosi counting votes and whipping her caucus together. That's why they've focused more on an inquiry and not holding any votes, because she doesn't want to put these moderates out there on a limb, forced to back up their idea that an impeachment inquiry needs to move forward. They can make all the statements that they want to, but she's trying to prevent them holding a vote. That's a bad thing in their book. So that's the political update. It's still very contentious, and though the polls, you'll hear the conventional wisdom is that all these polls look bad for Trump, and that's true. They're not great, 
They're also not great for Democrats in that it gives them a mandate to push forward on impeachment. That's a very different thing than just people not liking conduct. Having a mandate and put to push forward on impeachment is has to be very strong polling support. It can't just be 50-50 or below 50-50. It's not a 60-40 deal. It has to be closer to 70-75%. You have to have strong support for that to happen in the Congress. So that's the political update. The substance update on this um, really comes down to two things. The first is Kurt Volker and his testimony that he gave to Congress. He worked in Ukraine with the State Department. He was in an unpaid position. But the reports of this about what he has said and what he was deposed as saying to Congress behind closed doors, some of that sounds bad. I'm not overly focused on that right now because I would like to see all of that information released. Hearing things leaked from Adam Schiff and seeing generalizations of what's happening in those, in those things, if we've learned anything from the Mueller report, it's don't bother to trust anything any of these committees are putting out as their version of what happened. Just wait for the actual evidence to come forward. So that's part of what I'm waiting for with him. It's a little bit like he and Giuliani are a bit the same on that front. They've said a lot of things, they've texted a lot of things, and I'm just not really sure who to take seriously on that front. So I would wait for the actual testimony to come forth. The other thing that came out that is hard evidence that should be considered seriously are some texts between uh, Volcker and other State Department officials. The um, House Foreign Affairs Committee released some well, at least several of these texts, and the main ones that everybody's are focusing on are a series of texts from September 9th, 2019, between Ambassador Taylor and Ambassador Sondland, and they were talking about military assistance to the Ukraine. And the main text that everybody is focusing in on is a fourth one where Bill Taylor says, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. So everybody's pointing to that text message and saying, hey, this shows that even the people involved in the State Department believe that this entire Ukraine matter was only about Donald Trump targeting Joe Biden and targeting his political enemies and finding ways to hurt them. So that's really where all the... When I saw this happen on Twitter... And even all the cable news shows, they all basically stopped right there. But there's another text after that, and it comes from Gordon Sondland, who says, Bill, I believe you're incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quos of any kind. The president is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. If you still have concerns, I recommend you give Lisa Kenna or S a call to discuss them directly. Thanks. So, in these text messages, you have you have proof going both ways. Now, you could read that last one as sort of a CYA, covering your, your butt sort of deal, where you're trying to cover for yourself and make sure that all your bases are covered here by Sunderland, that if these are ever discovered, that you have this out there. You could read it that way. That's a natural, cynical way to read it. But just straight on its face, 
what you have is evidence going both ways, where somebody says one thing that says, hey, this was only this was going to be a political motivation by Trump, and another person saying, no, we have other interests involved here, and that's why we're doing this. It's not just about this corruption campaign or corruption investigation that involves the Bidens. We have more at play here than just that. So what, those are the things to watch. Those are the new updates. There, the polls appear to be sort of flatlining on the impeachment front. There's not been a lot of movement where you can say, okay, this story is moving this. We do have another whistleblower, according to reports in the media, and I don't know how seriously to take that because this one says that he has firsthand knowledge, but unless it's anything new, I don't know what else he would have, he or she would have to offer because we have the readout of the phone call and having another person just say, hey, these are my interpretation of the events that transpired. That's not overly helpful. We need to know what actually happened and not the people's thoughts of why they think something happened. So that's all I've got on the impeachment front. After the break, we'll come back and talk about Bernie Sanders and what his heart attack means for the elections moving forward. I have to say right off the bat here, you wish Bernie Sanders nothing but the best. Having a heart attack is an extremely scary situation, and you don't wish that on anybody. The original media report said that he had had two stents placed in some arteries that had blockages, and the, the all the descriptions said that he had had a heart attack during this week. So that's very serious and definitely affects his his campaign moving forward. He's he's definitely the oldest one in the field. He's around 78 years old. I think I heard that he'd be 79, pushing 80 if he were elected. So he'd easily be the oldest person that would ever be elected to the White House. And that matters. Things like this matter as far as electability is concerned because voters look at that. If they think, well, he's had a heart attack and he is really old, we need to take that into consideration when we're voting on him. And people try to analogize this to someone like Dick Cheney, but Cheney was the vice president. His heart troubles, and he'd had a litany of them, weren't as big of a deal as the health of George W. Bush, which everybody thought was fine. No one was worried about Bush falling over dead from something because he was the picture of health. Cheney was the one with poor health. In this case, it would be the work. It would be the the opposite. You have Bernie Sanders, who is old, and with this heart attack, is showing that he has frail health, too. And the weird thing about this is that the media is really giving him a pass on this front. No one's actively saying that Bernie Sanders should drop out of the race, which is really weird when you think about it, especially when you compare about it to everyone else in this field and in previous elections. If you just think back to 2016, Hillary Clinton, everybody enjoyed on the right, there you had all these rumors involved with her health and about her having poor health and the time that she stumbled when she left a memorial service for 9-11. She just did that once, and everyone was all over her health and wondering whether or not they needed to have somebody step in for her. And she's not, and Bernie Sanders is not getting anywhere near the amount of coverage of, of his health that she got. Or you can compare it in this race to Joe Biden. People attack him day and night for, his, uh, for losing his mental faculties. Julian Castro, one of the candidates, attacked him in a debate 
asking whether or not he had forgotten something that he had said in that debate. And so Democrats have hammered Biden at his age and health, and yet you're not seeing that same focus on Bernie Sanders. You could, and the last comparison I would make would be to Donald Trump because people have been trying to get rid of him through the 25th Amendment, saying that he's not fit to office because he's mentally ill. He's so narcissistic that it shows some kind of psychological break that makes him unfit for office. So you have all these instances of all these other old politicians being attacked again, again, and again for their health, and Bernie Sanders had a heart attack and he's not getting anywhere near the focus that these others are. It's one of those things where it's a clear bias towards a certain part of the Democratic Party. And you can see this play out in another way, because Bernie sits in a specific far-left progressive wing of the party that the media is more than happy to protect. And you can see this not just in how they approach him, but also in how they approach Elizabeth Warren. I think the best example here is Saturday Night Live. Elizabeth Warren gets played by one of the characters on there, and she's displayed as kind of a librarian of sorts, just sort of a strict school teacher. Whereas everybody else on the stage and every other candidate is depicted as crazy. Biden is self-absorbed and old and just rambles on with stories. Bernie is the old guy cranky. The funny comparison that they make with Kamala Harris is that she's always trying out for a TNT show. So they're all depicted as crazy, and while they poke a little bit of fun at Warren, you can tell she's the favorite because they don't go overboard with her like they do everybody else. So the media has picked her, and they've also picked Bernie Sanders as representing the ideas and ideals that they want to push forward. So they're not attacking her or him to the degree that they are touching everyone else. And that's telling both in the form of bias. There was a late story that broke as I was getting on air here from the Washington Free Beacon where they found that Elizabeth Warren had lied on an application about how she she claims that she got fired from her school, one of her schools and one of her jobs because she was pregnant. And this investigative report found when they went back through old records, it had nothing to do with that at all. This is something that Warren apparently fabricated, and her campaign hasn't put anything out about it. Nate Silver noted that this was only traveling around in two circles on Twitter. It was conservative Twitter who was talking about it, and it was people who were supporting Bernie Sanders. No mainstream outlet was talking about this breaking news story. No journalists were covering it, and no main news sites were even giving it any time. They'll cover anything else that's bad about Biden or anybody else, but they're not covering this story on Warren. So that's telling. This is telling us this is who they support and who they've chosen to support going forward. It's another way of showing bias isn't just on the Republican side of this, dealing with it. It's also on the Democratic side of the ticket because the media is actively putting their thumb down to make sure that they're supporting certain candidates over others. And in this race, the candidate they're supporting is Elizabeth Warren. They're also helping out Bernie Sanders because they like his ideas. And it's just another way of how media bias works. After we get back from this last break, we'll cover the audio clips of Mark Zuckerberg and what they tell us about him, Facebook, and government regulation as a whole. Like I said before, these audio clips 
that I'm about to play are from The Verge. They gathered them and got these leaked audio clips from various meetings and um, different gatherings of Facebook officials where Zuckerberg was talking about various threats to Facebook, competitors, and the election, and just how all that interplayed with with Facebook's end goals and how they would approach government regulation in the end. So there's two clips here. I'm going to play them back-to-back because they kind of cover the same deal, and then I'll walk through them after that. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies, um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. So does that still suck for us? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. But, but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the map and you fight. It's just that breaking up these companies, whether it's Facebook or Google or Amazon, um, is not actually going to solve the issues. And, you know, it doesn't make election interference uh, less likely. It makes it more likely because now the companies can't coordinate and work together. So that's Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg talking about the threats to the Facebook faces, both from Elizabeth Warren and the idea of the federal government coming after them using antitrust law. Now, I think I wanna, what I want to highlight here, first thing right off the bat, is I want you to notice what Facebook fears the most. It's not government regulation. You heard a lot over the past 6 to 12 months about whether or not Facebook needs more regulation about whether they need to be regulated and how their product works or how they need to throw all these different safeguards on to protect people from fake news, using heavy quotation marks there. It's not that any of these threats exist and that they, Facebook doesn't need to fix a lot of this, but that's not what Facebook fears, and it's not what keeps them up awake at night. What keeps them awake at night is antitrust law. Now, in the clips, Zuckerberg focuses on Elizabeth Warren because she talks about that a lot, but this has also been a subject of a lot of attention on the right. I've even had a column on this, and the last time Mark Zuckerberg was in Washington, D.C., he was questioned about antitrust matters with Facebook by Senator Josh Hawley, if I remember correctly, because Hawley was asking Zuckerberg whether or not he needed to divest himself of things like Instagram and WhatsApp, things that make Facebook and help them become and remain the dominant monopoly player that they are in the social media place. And it's not just that they have a strong monopoly, it's that they've eaten up their competition. If anybody comes in and tries to compete with them, they've probably bought them out. So that's what Facebook fears more than regulation. They talk about regulation in a way that you hear a lot if you go back in time. The old adage is, it's it's the Baptist and the bootleggers. There were two groups of people who really supported prohibition back in the day, who really wanted it banned and wanted it off the streets. The first were the Baptists, who obviously wanted alcohol banned for religious reasons, but the other people who wanted it banned were the bootleggers, the people who were selling the alcohol on the black market because that prohibition made their product prices go up because it was so hard to get. So you had these people with really nothing else in common except for the fact that they wanted alcohol banned. Facebook 
is the bootlegger in this analogy. They want this regulation. They, they actively are asking for it because they know if they get it, it'll mean that they're the only players in town. They won't be able to... They'll, they'll use that regulation to choke off any other new competition by raising the compliance costs that it takes to get over that, that regulation to make it so that they're the only ones who can afford to stay in business. So all these other companies, if you try to start up and create your own social media company that targets Facebook and starts beating them, they want to use these new regulations as a means of raising the costs for you to exist as a social media company and making sure that they have no other competition. So they want the regulation. What they don't want is antitrust to come after them. They don't want to happen to them what happened in the 80, the 70s and 80s when the federal government targeted AT&T and broke them up into all these various Ma Bell companies where you had all these various regional telephone companies all broken up. Now, over time, we've watched a lot of these phone companies merge back together, but there's still more competition out in the field than there was beforehand, and it's brought about a lot of innovation and a lot of good. So what Zuckerberg is talking about here with all the other companies, they also fear the same thing. Google has basically designed their entire company to be able to survive an antitrust matter. Their parent alphabet company, they've lined up all these various sub-companies that Google runs to basically be able to survive in the event that a breakup comes for Google. That's what they fear most of all, because a lot of them realize that they have become monopolies and they risk running afoul of these antitrust laws should anybody enforce them. And that's not just an Elizabeth Warren thing. That's legitimately something that's being talked about on the right as well, whether or not these things need to be strengthened in order to go after these companies. So if you're looking for a way to check Facebook in the future, don't look to regulation as the way, which a lot of Republicans are. Hawley is one of them, even though he talked about antitrust matters. Even he's looked at regulating these companies. Don't look to that. Look to use something like antitrust, which hits Facebook where it really counts and forces them to compete and not just buy out their competition. That'll do it for today's show. Questions, comments, or feedback, feel to reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes. Or reach out to me on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next column to come out on Mondays and Fridays at the Conservative Institute. And make sure to sign up for the newsletter. You'll get all my columns and other writings in your inbox at the end of each week. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. If you liked or enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us rise up in the rankings. I hope you tune in again. But until next time, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.